this is the Greyhorn Pagans Podcast. Here we talk about everything paganism, heathenism, witchcraft, mystery, and mythology. Sit back, relax, open your minds, and now let's take you back to the days of our ancestors. Welcome everyone to the Greyhorn Pagans Podcast. Welcome to Unholy Halloween Hauntings. Via the Greyhorn Pagans podcasts with your hosts, Stein Fox and Firefay. This is a special episode, and this is our Halloween special in collaboration with our most dearest friends, Horrifying History and Our Paranormal World. So once you're done listening to this one, go over to theirs, check out their episodes. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. Happy Samhain and happy Halloween. And with that out of the way, let's get spooky. This is the story of the city of Leiden, the Netherlands. A city with a great history spanning multiple hundreds of years. A city with a coat of arms of two red keys crossed on a white shield. So gather around the fire, grab your marshmallows and a horn of meat, and let us tell you about the legend of the keys of Leiden. Our story starts at what is now Peter's Church in the city of Leiden and its sanctification. In the year 1121, the church was still a minor chapel known as the Chapel of the Earls of the Netherlands. The task of sanctifying this chapel was given to Godebald, the 24th Bishop of Utrecht, to be performed on the first Sunday after the Catholic celebration of the birth of Mary, Mother of God. Godebald traveled to Leiden on the 8th of September, three days before the celebration, to make arrangements and prepare himself for this holy task. It was the first of the three days when Godebald made his way to the chapel for reconnaissance when he heard a booming voice coming from a nearby tree. Hold a bolt. Do not bless this chapel, for it will open the gates of hell and unleash evil spirits upon this world. Godebald looked up to the tree to see a pearly white dove sitting on one of its branches. It sounded like the voice was coming from the dove. Godebald thought nothing of it and just continued with his preparations for the sanctification. 
Holdabout, you have been warned. After that warning, the dove flew off the branch, nearly hitting Holdabout in the head. Holdabout ducked and cursed the dove for nearly hitting him. It was the second of the three days as Godebald once more made his way to the chapel in order to make preparations for the sanctification of the chapel when he again heard that voice coming from the tree. Godebald, do not bless this chapel for it will open the gates of hell and unleash evil upon this world. Godebald looked up in the tree to see if he could spot the dove again. Only this time, something was different. As he watched the dove, he saw its feathers starting to turn pink, then red, and then the whole dove being covered in its blood, seemingly streaming out of every pore in its body. Godebald, understandably, froze in fear by the sight of this dove oozing blood right in front of his eyes. He nonetheless scraped together his courage, ignored the warning of the dove, and continued his preparations. Holdabolt, you have been warned. The dove again flew off the branch, soaring over Godebald's head, splattering blood all over his face and cladding. Godebald, understandably disgusted by this, cursed the dove once more and returned to his temporary residence in the city to clean himself up. On the third and final day of the preparations for the sanctification of the chapel, Godebald left early to find that damned dove and end its terror for good. He walked up to the tree, wherein the two days before the dove was perched, but the dove was nowhere to be seen. Godebald shrugged his shoulders, prepared the holy water, and entered the chapel. He sanctified the chapel, blessing it with the holy water, in the name of Mary, Mother of God. Right after he finished, he heard that voice coming from behind him. Holdabolt, I have warned you three times not to bless this chapel, for it will open the gates of hell and unleash evil upon this world. Holdabolt turned around, fully expecting the dove from the two days before sitting behind him. But what he saw instead was the angel Gabriel in all of its might and glory. Holdabalt, you have ignored my warnings and have gone against the will of God. For this, you will be punished and hell will be unleashed. Holdabalt fell to his knees, stricken with fear. He could see the wings of the angel, like those of the dove the day before, turn pink, turn red, and again, its whole being be covered in blood, oozing out of every pore and out of every orifice in its body. He covered his eyes with his hands, 
not being able to look at this bloody spectacle taking place in front of him. After a while, Godebald, being curious, spread his fingers lightly to be able to peek through them, hoping Gabriel had left. He saw nothing. No angel, no blood, not one thing that proved whatever it was that just partook right in front of his eyes actually happened. Godebald stood up, still somewhat shook. He gathered his belongings and was preparing to make his way back to his temporary residence when from the end of the hallway, behind a large, heavy wooden door, he heard a noise. Very carefully, he walked up to the door, opening it ever so slightly when the ground underneath his feet split open and he felt the heat of hellfire coming from beneath him and heard the gnawing and gnashing of demons crawling up to the surface. Godebald ran outside and there grabbed the attention of some local construction workers. Gentlemen, please help. I have to close this portal to hell, but I cannot do it on my own. The construction workers shot to Godebald's aid, and after a major battle, the four of them managed to drive the foul beasts back and to close the large wooden door. This door they barricaded with a large wooden beam, locking this beam in place with two heavy iron locks. The keys to these locks Godebald protected and kept hidden until the day of his passing in the year 1127, six years after his battle with the demons. To this day, we remember Godebald and his battle, and we heed the warnings of the angel. We, the citizens of Leiden, have made this into an image, an image that can be found throughout the city as a reminder and as a warning. The image of two red keys sitting crossed on a white background. Where those keys are now, nobody knows. But I can tell you one thing, eBay sure sells some of the most interesting items. Thank you all for joining Fox and I as we described the story of how Lida got its name. Thank you all for joining. This was just a awesome mythological story of my hometown, the town that I grew up in that has made me who I am today. Thank you all so much for joining. Thank you for joining us on this most spooky time of year. Thank you for joining us on the Unholy Halloween Hauntings special. Don't forget to check out the other parts from Horrifying History and our paranormal world 
A happy Samhain and happy Halloween. Halloween. This is Craig from Our Paranormal World. I'm going to tell you a little story about a place that's fairly close to where I live. Unfortunately, there's nothing really close, but about two hours north, there's a former sanatorium for when the, the tuberculosis plague was out before they had antibiotics. It is called Tranquil Sanatorium. You may have actually heard of it because once upon a time, I think in the 90s, there was a show called MTV Fear. And they actually did their only Canadian location they did, and they called it Serenity Lake Sanatorium. And, well, like most things on TV, they really jumped up the activity. But it is still very, very haunted. Um, it's actually on the side of a river up near Kamloops, British Columbia. And it was originally with the winter camping grounds for the Native Americans. And then in 1857, the Europeans made it because of the British Columbia gold rush. So once upon a time, it was gold in the river. Not anymore. All right, so uh, in 1907, the sanatorium was actually built, and it was open until 1958. Unable to verify, but the legend says that it was mysteriously abandoned in that winter. And when they went to, went to it and find it in the spring, there was no staff and no patients. I'm sure it was probably closed down for the same reason that all tuberculosis sanatoriums are closed down. Antibiotics were being discovered, penicillin, in the 1940s, and antibiotics can cure tuberculosis. Previous to that, the only cures for it uh, were, well, they thought were fresh air. Uh, most people are probably pretty familiar with Waverly Hills in Kentucky. This sanatorium did basically the same thing. So, in 1959, it was reopened again as a hospital and a training site for the mentally handicapped, and then it completely closed down in 1983. Um, although, after that, they actually used it as a detention center for young offenders, but that was very, very brief. So, it's pretty much been a jail, a uh, moderate insane asylum, and a TV sanatorium, so... Yeah, the triumvirate for haunted activity, unfortunately, is always based on terrible tragedy. So in the early 90s, the land developer purchased it, uh, tried to create something called Padova City, which would be an Italian-based theme park. This did not work out. 
although there is really beautiful murals on some of the abandoned buildings from this time. But that's about it. Again, didn't make mortgage payments, bank took it. Uh, right now it's owned by Tranquil Farm Fresh. Uh, unfortunately, they used to offer tours, uh, both historical tours and paranormal tours. But since COVID, they have not offered any tours. Hopefully that will change soon. So basically, I have only been to the edge of the main building and one of the um, patient, where the patients used to live. Although I have walked the entire perimeter of the site. Definitely the energy pours out of it. Uh, even when you walk the perimeter of the site, you can see the buildings and pretty much, you know, it's not, they're blurry and stuff, but you can definitely see the faces of people staring out the windows and looking at you. On the property, I did feel as if I was being followed by something. Um, you can hear a lot of phantom whispering. Nothing, nothing really comes out clearly. Um, at least it didn't for me. But I'd like to obviously like to do more investigations there. It. Uh, I think the only real words I ever came that I ever got recorded possibility was something about being sick, which obviously makes sense. And then the, the normal helped me. But they do seem to be quite friendly. Just, you know, very curious. But they're not used to seeing living people these days, so. They're, they're quite, quite shy. I'd have to go back there more than once. You can hear sounds from inside the buildings, which are abandoned, like completely abandoned. Um, I didn't get a chance to get in the buildings, but it's, it, you know, it sounds like people walking around, um, things that sound like doors slamming, and verifiable that there was no one in there. Uh, but they, yeah, again, they do definitely seem very friendly there. It was a, it was a very positive experience to go there. And um, there's actually a number of, because um, we, of course, operate the OurParanormalWorld.com website, and there's actually a number of testimonials of people who, um, two that actually lived on the grounds. Once his grandfather was the main doctor, and another person was um, born to, their mother was a nurse on site. So definitely the activity was there even back when it was a sanatorium. Um, I've also talked to a number of people that didn't want, didn't want to be published on the website that actually had done investigations there, gone on the paranormal tours. And it's kind of one of those places where it just doesn't disappoint. There's always going to be something. I mean, there's no uh, records that I've been able to find on how many people actually died there. But based on the other tuberculosis sanatoriums in Canada and the United States and Western Europe, you'll probably looking at hundreds, possibly thousands. Um, and obviously some of them have become tragically trapped there. But uh, it's, it was de it's definitely a very good place to have a look. And you can try the, you know, I think you can find it on YouTube, the MTV for Serenity Lake. Just, it's a good look at this uh, area or this site, but um, everything they say, take it with a grain of salt. I think there's something about some goat boy being locked up and somebody keeping their, their dead wife in the house. And, uh, none of those things are true. There's also stories about storage of dead bodies in the tunnels. Totally and completely untrue. You know, everybody likes to exaggerate. Anyway, that's my story of the close, of someplace close to me. And I will, I'm sure we'll be doing this again and again with uh, the great Greyhorn Paranormals and um, Paranormals Pagans and, of course, Haunted History both of whom are absolutely awesome. Anyway, um, happy Halloween, happy Samhain, enjoy the season, and we'll talk again soon.
My name is Brenda, and I'm the creator and host of the podcast Horrifying History. Are you into the dark side of history? Horrifying History tells you about the side of history that people don't normally talk about. We tell the tales of haunted places, infamous true crimes, the paranormal, unsolved mysteries, and then we look to history to see where the truth actually lies. Now today, I have a question for you. What is a ghost? In legends, a ghost is the soul or spirit of a former living entity that somehow bypasses death to remain in our realm. From an invisible presence to wispy shades and realistic-looking forms, manifestations of the dead have long been a strong belief of people from around the world. Most of us love listening to ghost stories because of the anticipation of a thrill. They offer us a sense of control over terror, and that is something that none of us can get in our real lives. Maybe that's the reason why, at this time of the year, we all love hearing a truly scary story. And luckily for me, the area I live in is full of dark tales of things that go bump in the night. Some of these start at a place that is called the Rideau Canal. The Rideau Canal is a UNESCO World Heritage Site that is a 25-mile or 202-kilometer-long canal that links the Ottawa River in Ottawa, Canada to the St. Lawrence River at Kingston, Ontario. After the War of 1812, Intel was received that the United States was planning to invade the British colony of Upper Canada from Upper New York State. The plan was to take the St. Lawrence River and this would cut off the connection between Montreal and Upper Canada's naval base located in Kingston. To prevent this from happening, the British constructed or reinforced existing defences along the border. But what if the United States were able to do what they planned to do? To ensure a safe passage between Montreal and Kingston, Upper Canada planned a route that would go westward from Montreal along the St. Lawrence River, then it would travel north along the Ottawa River to hit the mouth of the Rideau River. After that, it would go southwest via canals to Kingston, and then it would flow into Lake Ontario. This plan worked. Since the Rideau Canal was completed, no further military engagements have taken place between Canada and the United States. But the canal actually played another pivotal role in the early development of Canada. It encouraged shipping and trade, as well as encouraged the settlement of tens of thousands of immigrants into Upper Canada. It became a vital commercial artery between Montreal and the Great Lakes, and eventually it helped link together the U.S. and Canada as trading partners. Today, the Rideau forms part of what is called the Great Loop, which is a major waterway route that connects the eastern United States with Canada. But it also has another distinction. Each winter, a section of the Rideau Canal near my house becomes the world's largest and second longest skating rink in the world. It has the equivalent of 90, yes, 90 hockey rinks and attracts millions of visitors every year. But there is a dark side to the Rideau Canal that not many people know about. This resulted in this place to be considered one of the most haunted places in Canada, but to understand this, we need to go back in time. Construction began in 1826 and it was supervised by Lieutenant Colonel John By of the Royal Engineers. Private contractors were responsible for most of the construction, with the majority of the labour being done by thousands of Irish, Scottish and French-Canadian labourers. 
Early on, Lieutenant Colonel Bai figured out that he had to build a canal system that was large enough for ocean-going ships to use. And here is where the problem number one came up. The area where the canal had to go was sitting on the Canadian Shield. The Canadian Shield is a very large area that is an exposed portion of the continental crust. It underlies a big part of North America, and it is hard rock that is at least a billion years old. This shield actually covers about 50% of the Canadian landmass, but it's buried deep, except for where Lieutenant Colonel Bai needed to place that canal. So what did he do? He did what many people still do today. He had his workers excavate using pry bars or explosives. Boatloads of new immigrants were constantly recruited for this task, since the explosions injured and killed many. If it wasn't that that would kill, it was the malaria that the workers would get, since there were many mosquito-filled swamps that lined the planned route. Each year, the canal demanded a workforce of about 7,000 men, and each year, about 1,000 of these would die due to accidents and disease. Their deaths went largely unrecorded, and most of these were buried in unmarked graves along the canal's length. It is said that many of these long-lost workers are seen walking by the canal, along with the terrifying vision of a person who's seen walking the area of the canal that is located in downtown Ottawa. This person is wearing a dark cloak with a hood pulled over their head. When a person attempts to see this spirit's face, all they see is glowing red eyes. This ghost is often seen walking near a building that sits beside the Rideau Canal and is located between the also-haunted Chateau Laurier and Parliament Hill in downtown Ottawa. This building is the Bytown Museum, and it tells the stories of those who were attached to this canal. This building is the oldest stone structure in Ottawa, and it was used as a treasure and storehouse during the construction of the canal system. It was built in 1827, and the most well-known ghost that is said to haunt the building is General Duncan McNabb, who used to be the supply manager who died during construction. Another one is a name that you heard already, Lieutenant Colonel John By. It is also said that this building is haunted by the countless workers who died nearby the same way that General McNabb did, in a construction accident. Those who work or visit the Bytown Museum claim that electronic equipment turn on and off by themselves, and strange messages appear on computer or phone screens in empty rooms. People often hear a male voice yelling, Get out! And female visitors often claim that they get pushed really hard from behind when they're alone in an empty room. Others experience being poked hard in the back, and when a person turns around to see, there's no one there. But some of the most spooky things seem to occur in a section where the antique dolls are kept. Many report that when they walk past, the dolls will wink at them or that their eyes will follow them as they walk by. A short drive away from the Bytown Museum sits a small village called Manatick. Established in 1860 along the shores of the Rideau River sits Watson's Mill, which still remains active today as a working water-powered flour mill. Right beside this sits the Dixon House, and this was built in 1867. It would become the home of the owners of the mill, and today, this is open to the public as a heritage house museum. These two locations are very well known as local landmarks, 
but also for its ghost, Annabelle. Local lore tells that Annabelle is the spirit of Anne, who was the wife of one of the mill's original owners, Joseph Currier. Shortly after Watson's Mill was officially opened on February 14, 1891, Joseph decided to bring his new bride over for a visit. They had just gotten back from their honeymoon, and Anne was very excited to see the new business venture of her husband of six weeks. But neither of them expected what happened on this day. Anne started to ascend a staircase located between the second and third floors when suddenly her dress got caught up in the spinning machinery of the mill. There was no time to react as Anne was flung against a sturdy wooden pillar. She was killed on impact and Joseph was devastated. He could no longer bear to be connected to this mill in any way. Immediately, he sold his portion and moved to nearby Ottawa. But the thing is, my spooky friends, Anne never left. Her spirit is still seen today at Watson's Mill. On many evenings, the apparition of a breathtakingly beautiful flaxen-haired young woman is seen looking out the second floor of windows towards the waterway. Is Anne still waiting for her husband to bring her home? This location has been investigated by several paranormal groups over the years, and they all report the same thing. Unexplained sounds like footsteps, knocking, and disembodied voices. They also experience strange lights from no known sources, tugging on clothing, temperature changes, and electronics that stop working without explanation. But Anne is not the only female spirit who is spending eternity at the Rideau Canal. Burritts Rapids is another small village that's located on the Rideau River, and this place started with a man named Stephen Burritt. Stephen, his wife Martha, and his brothers Daniel and Edmund decided to go to this area in 1793. This was because Stephen was granted land where the hamlet sits now. When the canal was being constructed in the area, Stephen's land was divided up and it became an island which is now the heart of this community. Nothing much has changed in this village for the last 200 years or so, but one of these things that didn't change is the tale of the lady in blue. This tale starts with a red-haired woman named Kathleen McBride. Kathleen arrived at Burritts Rapids on a summer day in the 1860s, long after the canal was finished in their area. Kathleen rented a room in the hotel that was beside the canal's bridge, and immediately, staff at the hotel thought that something strange was going on. Why? That was because the maid attending to her room told the other staff that Kathleen only brought with her one of everything, including one blue dress, one pair of shoes, one brush, and one suitcase. They thought that normally those traveling would probably take more things than that. Now another odd thing was that during her stay, Kathleen spoke to no one. She stayed from summer and into fall without saying anything to anyone. But what she would do is spend hours standing on a hill upriver at the end of the island of Burritts Rapids. She stood at the nearby dam, watching the water rushing down or walking along the bank of the canal and the river. Now the villagers thought it looked like that she was looking for something, but what? No one knew. Then on Halloween, Kathleen left the hotel to do her regular routine stand and watch the water rush from the dam, and then walk the shore of the canal. But this time, she did not return. 
Two days later, a torn piece of a blue satin dress was found on the bank of the Rideau River at the point where a bridge crossed the river into the nearby village. Her body was never found, and the villagers believed that Kathleen met her end in either one of two ways. Either she fell or jumped into the river and drowned, or she was attacked and eaten by one of the bears that lived in the nearby woods. Now, my spooky friends, neither of these options are a good way to go, and many believe that this is why the spirit of the red-headed lady in blue has never left. As the years passed, people would talk about seeing her spirit near the dam on the hill. Now, according to local lore, Kathleen still searches for whatever she was looking for in life by walking or floating through the air at the shore of the canal. She is still seen clutching her blue dress to her chest, and many feel a strong chill in the air as she moves past them. Today, people still hear her crying as she searches for something that she will never find. Now for my last tale today, I'm going to tell you about another museum that is near the Rideau Canal system, the Perth Museum. The town of Perth began as a military settlement in 1816, and it sits on the Rideau River. Many of its first settlers were military veterans who were offered land in return for their service, and many of the beautiful old buildings in this town date back to the early 1800s. One of these is the Perth Museum, which was built for one of the town's most distinguished citizens, Senator Roderick Matheson. Roderick was a wealthy merchant, and he was a senator in Canada's first parliament after Confederation. His house was considered to be one of the largest and finest in town, and he often held lavish parties in the house and beautiful gardens of the stately home. Here, he entertained politicians, the wealthy, and the area's most prominent business owners. Now, Roderick had seven daughters, Mary, Rose, Flora, Isabella, Joan, Anna, and Eliza. These beautiful young women would attend these parties too, and they would talk with the guests and give them tours of the grounds. When the last daughter, Eliza, died in the house in 1929, the property was sold and became the Burkaker Tea Room from 1930 to 1938. They weren't only known for their soup, sandwiches, and afternoon tea, but also for their paranormal activity. It is said that during the 1930s and 1940s, ghostly activity massively picked up after the grounds and main building was used to host several prominent clairvoyants. Now, since then, mysterious noises and lights are seen both in the home and in the garden. It is said that of Roderick's seven daughters, all but one remain as spirits in the house that they love so much. There is only one who didn't, and this is because she chose to marry and leave the family home, unlike the rest of her sisters. This haunting is very different than the others I told you about today for one main reason. Many spirits remain due to violence or sorrow, but not these girls. They chose to return to the place where they spent the happiest times in their lives. For decades, many people have reported seeing shadowy figures in the dark walking through and taking care of the gardens in the moonlight. They also have been seen in the house in the daytime, never leaving the place that they loved so deeply in their lives. Thank you all for joining me to listen to just a few of the ghost stories from where I live. Now, if you want to get spooky with us, subscribe to our podcast today on Spotify, Spreaker, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. 
To get even more spooky content, join us on Facebook at Horrifying History, on Instagram and threads as Horrifying underscore History, or on Twitter at HorrifyingHIST1. And with this, we have come to the end of our Halloween special on Holy Halloween Hauntings. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been a awesome collaboration and a collaboration that we are most certainly going to do more times than one. So keep an eye out for that. Subscribe to Our Paranormal World. Subscribe to Horrifying History. And of course, last but most certainly not least, subscribe to the Grey Orange Pagans podcasts. And check us out at www.greyhornpagans.com. With this, I am signing off. Thank you all. Happy Halloween. Blessed Samhain. Have a wonderful Alpha Blut. And until next time, everybody. See ya.